0: Right now, as, as all of us have been witnessing in the press, there's been debate off and on about the extent, the duration, the intensity of the inflationary environment. But I think from a business perspective, this episode of inflation is going to be what we call permanent enough that we actually have to act. So that means this year, next year, 2023, at least we will be in what we call the higher inflation environment. And that means that we have to change what we're doing if we what we want to navigate what's going to happen in front of us.
1: From McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance Practice, I'm Sean Brown, and welcome to Inside the Strategy Room. You just heard our guest, Ezra Greenberg, lay out the ongoing challenge that soaring inflation represents for business leaders. How to navigate that inflation is the topic of our podcast today. And with me are the authors of a recent article that sets out an inflation playbook for CEOs. We'll include a link to their article in the show notes. Ezra is a partner in our Stamford, Connecticut office and co-leads our strategic transformation services work in North America. He also leads our work on macro scenarios and trends globally, helping clients understand how these forces impact strategy and investment decisions. Asatash Paddy is a senior partner in our Chicago office and serves clients on strategies related to technology, innovation, and operating model redesign. He's also McKinsey's managing partner across North America and is a part of our global leadership team. Asitash, let's start with you. Why is rapidly rising inflation such a challenging scenario for CEOs?
2: Thank you. Thank you, Sean. And glad to do this with you and Ezra. Today's topic is a topic that probably about two years ago we'd not have been expected to spend much time on, but many CEOs have never actually experienced or dealt with this. The last time we had such high inflation was in the late 1980s in the United States. This does not apply to all countries of the world. Uh, but I think there's many geographies here which are likely to be facing high levels of inflation. And I would say this really applies to geographies who have historically not been in high inflationary environments, but have recently found themselves to be in high inflationary environments. And therefore, through uh, work with McKinsey Global Institute and uh, work with clients. We've tried to distill this down into what is a set of practical decisions that management uh, teams, that CEOs and management teams can make to guide the organization through this.
1: Thanks, Asitash. Ezra, given that this is so novel to most corporate leaders, do you find that they're acting on the implications for their businesses? Or are they waiting to see if this is really
0: real? Yes good morning and 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 terrific to be with you. Right now as as all of us have been witnessing in the press there's been debate off and on about the extent the duration the intensity of the inflationary environment but I think from a business perspective this episode of inflation is going to be what we call permanent enough that we actually have to act. So that means this year next year 2023 at least we will be in what we call the higher inflation environment. And that means we have to change what we're doing if we, what we want to navigate what's going to happen in front of us.
2: And therefore, there's a lot of echo chambers currently around how real the inflation is. And as Ezra said, our perspective is it's probably real enough that it merits uh, senior management attention and CEO and board attention. We're finding that about half the CEOs and boards are now convinced that vehicle, that inflation is permanent enough and are ready to act on it. The other half are still getting their heads around it, right? So they're still asking the questions, what if, what happens What happens under different scenarios for energy security, for food, and so on. The second part of the reaction is very much around, what's the playbook to deal with this? Because we have not dealt with this before. And uh, on a practical basis, we see the six levers that organization can focus on.
1: Thanks, can you walk us through them at a high level?
2: Uh, The first and foremost is how do you start to redesign your product and service offerings for valued availability? But indeed, many of the offers that made sense in uh, in a low inflation environment may or may not make economic sense anymore. The second topic is around supply chain, and this is a moment where resilience has become very important, even as companies are negotiating and dealing with high inflationary pressures. This is also an opportunity to think about what the next chapter looks like. And a few key words that I'd highlight are digital, agility, and resilience. The third lever is procurement. And I think while there might be a tendency to go in and hammer suppliers and so on, I think this is as much an opportunity to be able to transform procurement into a function that really drives that becomes a real strategic partner to CEOs and someone and, and, uh, and take it through cycle mindset here on talent this is the most interesting part, which is we are dealing with talent shortages in the middle of a high inflationary environment. And often there's a tendency to focus on compensation. But I think the reality is most of the, to the research that we all have done, the reason that people, we have high attrition, compensation is a factor, but is by no means sufficient. And this is an opportunity to go back and rethink many elements of what you actually offer to employees. We sometimes call this the talent value proposition. But it gets at belonging, it gets at flexibility, it gets at employee development, and many more other aspects. On pricing, I think many companies look at this and say, "You know, can we pass through all the cost increases that we're getting?" Yes, you can. But I think the question is, if you take a through-cycle mindset, are you able to make pricing uh, decisions that not only help you offset the margin pressure, but also help you strengthen your customer relationships on the other side of this? Because the, uh, the many customers, especially the strategic ones, who will actually remember how you dealt with them. And the last thing we'd say is, how do you actually pull together a forum, a mechanism? We're calling this an Inflation Program Management Office. This is no different than how companies have dealt with created nerve centers in the initial days of COVID to actually deal with it. And we pull it together under the idea that the CEO is an organization's ultimate integrator.
1: Those nerve centers that many companies created at the peak of the COVID pandemic were intended to deal with rapidly changing circumstances. Do you see the need for the same speed of response now?
2: It is similar, Sean, in some aspects, and uh, it's different in some aspects. Uh, It's similar in the aspect that it is very cross-functional, and it's oriented around uh, rapid decision-making for the organization. But it's different is in the crisis, in the initial part of the crisis, at least most companies were focused on near-term survival and, and cash and protection, right? Are our, are our employees safe? Can we take care of our customers? So I think, you know, there was a, the focus was very much on the next one, two, three months. On this one, I think what we'd argue is it is very important to be able to look at different time horizons as you make the decisions. It's important to take a through-cycle mindset, therefore, the actions you can take in the next three to six months, the actions that you can take around what will pan out for the next one to two years, and beyond two years, beyond two to three years, when when you essentially uh, emerge from this inflation environment, have you not just protected the company, but have you strategically strengthened the institution?
1: So let's dive deeper into the first lever that you mentioned, which is rethinking your product and service offerings. How far should companies go in reassessing their businesses?
2: Great question. How do you start to rethink what you offer? It's not just trying to cost reduce what you offer, but start to think about what you what are actually the, the inputs that go into this, right? Uh, as you start to look at it and say, there are going to be a range of commodities that will likely be more volatile, that will likely be more scarce and that will likely require both higher uh, production and servicing costs. And one of the approaches we have seen is around something called design-to-value, which is an approach which brings together uh, a customer-backed viewpoint with folks. You know, this is especially relevant for product-based organizations, which really requires uh, you to look at what the customers value, what are they willing to pay for, and then from an engineering standpoint, what are the design requirements and uh what cost can you get this at from the automotive world if you look at the number of total number of design options that different oems provide and the highest versus the lowest price between the make versus the model packages and say what is the variability that we see which is like about 3x the the difference between the you know between the lowest versus the highest so how do you think about the number of Variations that you provide, what are the different price points that you're able to provide it, and what does it actually imply from the standpoint of CapEx and OpEx? This is an opportunity. We've always talked about ideas like platforming, which is the construct of you can have the variability at the customer front end, but how do you keep the design and all the cost of design and manufacturing and servicing to a bare minimum? And this is really an opportunity uh, to be able to uh, lean into that if organizations
1: have not already done so. Great, so next in in the list comes supply chains, which obviously became a major focus and challenge for businesses during the pandemic, even before inflation started to soar. Does inflation change how companies should approach their overall supply network or deal with individual suppliers?
2: At the beginning of the pandemic, companies started to take a a play, close attention to what really is happening to supply chains. And the focus shifted away from really cost reduction to much more around resiliency. And what do you mean by resiliency? Resiliency is is the ability of the supply chain to be able to withstand different types of shocks And for the first time, you're able to quantify and put a business value around resiliency. This was the thing that the pandemic changed. Most companies have solved for resilience with higher levels of inventory. But as we know, that's really a near-term answer. How do you go from building inventory to saying, how do you start to rethink the supply chain? If you look at supply chains, we call the suppliers that are working directly with you as tier one suppliers. Their suppliers are called tier two suppliers and the suppliers who provide the tier two suppliers are called the tier three suppliers. Most institutions, global institutions today, have less than 2% visibility to the tier two and tier three suppliers. And what companies are starting to now do is to start to develop visibility into that by using digital, by using analytics, and by just working through the diligence to say, what are the most important what are the most uh, who are the most critical components and therefore who are the most critical suppliers? What are the risk factors that they should consider? So the specifics will vary for each institution, but you could look at it and say across the different aspects of what your supply base looks like, when do you start to build resilience and mitigate risk? An example of a medtech uh, player, who had roughly about 400 pliers, but through this exercise, what they were able to do is to distill it and boil it down to around 20 or so that they identified as critical and high risk, which gave them a practical strategy around how they could start to build resilience and agility into the supply chain.
1: Thanks, Asitash. The the supply chain lever that you just took us through also links to procurement, the third lever that you mentioned. On procurement, is the point less about resilience and risk and more about simply controlling for rising costs?
2: At this point, you can view procurement in in, in a couple of different ways. You can say, my procurement function should really be helping me fight inflation. It's my first, second, and third lines of defense. And yes, it is. Uh, But it's also an opportunity to come back and reimagine what procurement can do. So there is that. That's what we would call as kind of the day-to-day inflation-fighting point of view. That's great, but in an environment where you're supply-constrained, it clearly is not enough. And how do you reposition procurement uh, to be a lot more of a strategic partner? And how do you start to think about different relationships with your supply base? How do you think about more cross-functional collaboration across operations, across finance, across commercial? And how do you take a view that actually positions you to be able to work differently? You have a different set of insights into your supply base and you're embedding them into, into contract structures that are much smarter. And we're seeing a number of different uh, structures that are emerging. There's some companies that are forming joint ventures as a way to start to gain uh, in critical areas where they believe that they're gonna be constrained. There are OEMs, for example, in semiconductors that are starting to partner up with many of the players uh, to start to develop proprietary partnerships and relationships as a way to get advanced access to priority manufacturing and priority supply. There's something about paying for capacity, and we start to see this, which is a different type of contractor, and then through this, they can guarantee access to production. And lastly, there's a lot of core development These aren't like standalone strategies. We see many variations of this. And the whole idea is to how do we go beyond just the traditional structure of buying to be thinking differently about different aspects of your supply base and saying, especially for the most strategic ones and for the most critical ones, how do you start to rethink what those relationships look like?
1: Got it. So we've also been hearing talk about price controls. Are you seeing any of your clients say to suppliers, this is the price we're going to pay? Or are they typically going through a more strategic negotiating process where they actually try to keep the supplier successful while still trying to manage price increases?
2: Um, the, let me start with saying what, what I think you are seeing with this. Uh, historically, there's always been, even in environments that are not inflationary, there's always a healthy tension between. You know, between customers and the suppliers, at least there should be, in terms of getting to the efficient frontier from a negotiation standpoint. What has happened is that has changed. That has changed now because of the changes in the inflation expectations between suppliers and the customers. And as of right now, we are seeing a huge variability in the degree of approaches that companies are taking, all the way from A standard blunt instrument which in many cases is not yielding the results and is actually driving more frustration to places where companies have recognized the importance have recognized the fact that we are indeed finding ourselves in a different reality where supply chains will be more scarce will be more constrained and therefore just using the same hammer over and over again does not work so we're starting to see that conversation kick in right now and say how do we construct solutions here?" that are truly win-win.
1: And to your point about procurement becoming more strategic, do you see organizational changes in where the heads of procurement now report and what their mandates might be?
2: I'm seeing three ways in which the role of procurement is being elevated or can get elevated. The first one is a reporting relationship. Uh, Historically, only in a handful of institutions has it reported directly to the CEO but I think there is a trend to say how do you elevate whether it goes into the COO, a CEO, the CFO, the COO, there might be different right answers for different institutions, but I think in general elevating that. The second one is the metrics. What do you actually hold procurement uh, accountable for? If the focus is on in-year productivity, I think that you know, that is gonna lead you to potentially a different uh, only, if that's the only thing as opposed to how do you build in this idea of are you building a supply chain that's more resilient? Are you building in capabilities around digital? Is this gonna lead you to better institutional capabilities? Is this gonna make the company more sustainable? So how do you pivot the metrics? And I would say the third thing is talent, which is who's actually leading your procurement function and is that person now uh, really, is this you know, the person who did, played this role for the last 15 years? Or is this someone who's come in with a different skill set and you see as being a real high performer uh, leading this and can think both strategically as well as tactically?
1: Thanks, Asatash. Ezra, let's turn to you. Can you walk us through the next lever on talent? And how should leaders evolve their talent strategies in light of this new
0: context? Thank you, Sean. As Ashtar said at the top, When people are thinking about inflation, it may not be that the talent question is the first thing that comes to mind. But from a firm economics perspective, the compensation and benefits portion of the cost that we bear uh, is heavily weighted towards the talent equation. So the connection to inflation is that wages are a fundamental driver of underlying demand and then ultimately a fundamental driver of cost to firms. You may remember, uh, or at least you're probably seeing in the press these days, these references to the wage price spiral, the vaunted wage price spiral from the 1970s, which is the situation where higher wages beget higher prices, which beget higher wages, which is a place that the Federal Reserve does definitely not want to go. And so the question really is, what can we do? There's certainly an ante that's there between wages and salaries. Uh, but what we find from our research is that that's, as that that's just not the only thing. We did a survey of any workers who left their jobs without another job in, in hand. We asked them why. And compensation wasn't even in the top five. It was, you know, ability to make progress. It was exhaustion from the job. It was career opportunities. And so kind of this kind of sense of purpose and sense of belonging are very attractive and necessary on top of the actual compensation and benefits, which is really just the ante. And then there's this real question now of like, where have all the workers gone? Um, and we know that the labor force participation rate is down. Uh, we know that there's uh, supply demand imbalances in many labor markets across many industries right now. And the usual tools of attracting and retaining workers are not uh, are not really working as well. And, and part of that is because there are many workers who now have left the workforce who are not looking. They're not looking for work. But we call them latent workers or non-traditional workers, they will come if they get the right offer. So the big people challenge is, well, how do I find them? And so part of this kind of changing talent game is new value proposition for talent and then new ways in which to get out and make yourself known as being able to offer this full value proposition.
1: We're seeing a lot in the press right now about an increasing number and success levels of unionization drives. Historically, negotiations with unions focus on wages and benefits. Are companies that do what you just described, seeing less pressure on wages and benefits or less pressure to unionize?
0: So it's, uh, there's kind of two sets of issues in there that we should talk about. The, the first one was, okay, well, how do we get people to stay, right? And, you know, one of the suggestions uh, that we made in, in a recent article by Aaron DeSmet and others on this research was, uh, you know, we have exit interviews, right? Why don't we have stay interviews? <laughs> like, why don't we just ask <laughs> our employees, like, well, what is it going to take, you know, for you to stay before they have a foot out the door, right? So it's just a bit of a mindset shift. And the factors that we have from the research are around, you know autonomy, and also being part of a community, and being able to contribute, uh, and having recognition, and all of those very soft kind of human things, which we all need to feel fulfilled. And most businesses have really been focusing on the wages and salaries piece. Those who have, who are not, who are, who are filling this kind of whole package of goods, they have a much better chance of insulating their workers. So it really is thinking beyond. Just the, the paying compensation piece to the whole environment and, and trying to make the uh, workers or the employees that you have realize that, you know, there are, there are trade-offs in any job, but the trade that you're giving them by staying in their current place has got these advantages that are very, very hard to replicate elsewhere. Compensation can be replicated, right? But the culture and the opportunity and the mobility and the flexibility in particular cannot. It's really important to realize that this anecdotal evidence that we had kind of building up through COVID of people's preferences are changing, they might want to stay home, and and it was just really anecdotal. It's now pretty clear from the research that there has been a shift in preferences and there has been a shift in attitudes. and, And people have figured out that, oh, they can actually have one person at home and one person working if they make these kinds of adjustments to their lifestyle. And maybe that's okay. right? And so there has been this shift and, um, and Aaron, who uh, wrote the article on this research, has got a great line, which I love to repeat, which is in looking at the work-life balance, workers are choosing life. <laughs> so, uh, and that's kind of where it is. And I think we just all have to realize that, right? Um, as far as unions are concerned, you know, anytime you get into a tight labor market like we're in right now, and we just have never seen a labor market like this in our lifetimes, the bargaining power of sides start to equalize. And some people see that, um, you know, banding together in a new type uh, environment, actually it's better to do now because they, they have even more uh, ability to, to, to push through and get the types of things and ask the things that they want. But I think it's just a natural, uh, my view is it's a natural outgrowth of, um, of what's happening, you know, in the labor market.
1: So if the reality is that compensation is simply table stakes and it's these other softer factors that are making the difference. How are employees making their desires known you, you raised the excellent uh, recommendation of of considering stay interviews, but are there any other survey instruments you're seeing companies use or any other tools you'd like to share with our listeners
0: well i mean it's it's it is it is the pulse surveys but and, and those kinds of things, but I actually think it's managers doing their job honestly are they meeting with their employees in one on one in informal settings like all of the all of the really good hygiene stuff that we always talk about, but the stuff that gets knocked off the calendar because we're so busy, that stuff has to take a priority. It's just a question of prioritization, right? I'm not, I don't think there's any revelations to give, uh, obviously, the technology tools help, but, you know, it's, it's really more about the base culture, human connection, spending time on the front line, being available having an office door like all, all of these kinds of things right and in the zoom environment probably proactively reaching out more than you typically would uh because there's no there's there's less hallway, hallway conversation or creating uh, events uh and moments that are weekly that you can get everyone to now come in and be together again and try to create that community
1: Thanks, Ezra. Uh, what role are you seeing stakeholder capitalism and ESG, specifically the S or social aspect of ESG, playing in talent retention and attraction? And are companies really getting serious about demonstrating their purpose? For example,
0: I, I think the I think the answer to that is is yes, uh, and I think the answer is yes, but how? <laughs> right? So, like, it's not it's it's not obvious exactly which dials to turn and which are most effective and how to get that done. But I, I think it's one of those things where it is getting a lot of attention. Let me, give you, let me just give you one example about the Im- importance of it. So what we witnessed with the tragic invasion of Ukraine by Russia was an exodus of Western-based companies from Russia. And that wasn't because there were sanctions that were put in effect which caused these companies to leave. And it was internal decisions looking at the broader range of stakeholders that caused them both because of their customers and in many cases because of their employees, that's these that these decisions were made. So we've the if, if you want like the latest and most stark example of the stakeholder capitalism, this is about as specific as it gets, right? You know, you do have people making these des- companies making these decisions for non-economic reasons. How do we know that? Well, because countries from other parts of the world where these types of pressures aren't there did not make these decisions. And so that, you know, that to me is, is, is the latest proof point that sustainable and inclusive growth and holistic impact that is starting to seep its way into management teams. And I think we're all trying to figure out how to how to solve it.
1: Indeed. Okay, thank you. So let's shift now to talking about pricing, which is the other side of this inflation equation, passing along rising costs to customers.
0: Okay. Pricing, everybody's favorite. Uh, hi, I'm here to i am here to raise prices and you're, and, and you're going to love me for it is kind of the answer here, right? So this is obviously a, a tricky situation with price increases. And I would say just to ground us in the current environment and where we actually are, I guess the way to think about this is like a pentathlon, right? Okay, we've been through the first event. Uh, the first event was the price shock, the commodity shocks, And the the discombobulation of supply and demand across many markets and supply chain problems, which resulted in in these mismatches and increases uh, in in cost, which have largely been passed along to consumers. And so the question where we are right now is not whether or not we've been able to pass uh, cost increases through. The answer to that from the data, at least for publicly traded companies that we have access to, is a resounding yes, that has happened. The question is, what's happening as we enter the second, third, fourth, and fifth events, right? Uh, and then how do you think about in operating in an environment of, of higher inflation? Now, as Ashutosh said, you know it's not something that we're quite familiar with. But just to put numbers on it, you know, if you think about a, an inflation environment that's one to two percent, and you, you versus an inflation environment that's three to four percent, that's just a different muscle that needs to get exercised. In order to maximize value in, 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 in that environment, it's not impossible. It's not "quote unquote" hyperinflation, which, by the way, means 50% per month. Uh, and we're we're at right now in the U.S. last reading 8% on a year, so we're not we're not anywhere near what we would call hyperinflation. Uh, but it's still significant. And I think that the what are the, what our pricing practice has concluded is that I mean, there's just a whole bunch of levers, right? Uh, Beyond just the price lever that allows us to keep control of that kind of frontline commercial relationship and that working with customers so that they understand what you're going through and you understand what they're going through can actually go a long way. I had a client uh, who was a B2B client who was faced with some very significant increases in commodity prices And they created this kind of custom index view of what does their cost actually look like? Not the newspaper CPI or whatever it happens to be. And and they went to their customers and said, this is the reality, right? Let's talk about how we can figure out how much we're going to bear, you're going to bear, how much we're going to pay. And that conversation actually built some quite strong relationships, right? adjustments to discounting and promotions and SLAs and delivery times and what are you giving away for free? All of those kind of packages that go into commercial relationships that are not just in in the price lever need to be looked at. And and in many cases, many companies have got these contracts that have been hanging around for a long time and no one has kind of opened the door on them for a while. And we're not sure we should be giving these promotions and discounts. And are, are we actually doing that? I work a lot with B2B companies, and I always say, don't forget there's a C out there somewhere. right? At some place, there's a customer, uh, because it goes into demand. And so being conscious of what your customer's customer is going to do, and if you know, for example, that there is just little ability for them to pass on because of the competitive nature of that market, then you need to figure out different stuff, because it's just not going to stick. That's just the reality of the situation. So it's much more pick and choose carefully. And, you know, I think it's also, it's also important, and this gets back to the employee value proposition and and what, um, you know, what your actual workers are feeling, because they're seeing it at the gas price and, uh, you know, they're seeing in the supermarket is like, there has to be a conversation about this. Nobody's used to living like this, right? And, you know, having talked to many, many uh, companies and clients uh, about this over the last several months, there's just a lack of information of what it actually means and what the implications are just for ourselves. And so to the extent that we as, as leaders uh, can help our employees understand what does it mean to live in this environment and what are the watch out for's, uh, and what are the things to be careful about, what are the things to to look, uh, I think is quite important because typically for consumers, particularly for those who have lived in the US and Europe where we haven't seen inflation for a long time, they're just starting to figure out that they're coming home with less stuff from the grocery store, right? And it's not ingrained in in their head that price increases go up by an amount that I have to watch and it decreases my purchasing power and therefore I've got to make choices, be very specific. What product channel kind of exposures to inflation? Is it, is it, is it lower? Is it high? And then what's, what's the likelihood that you, you, you're going to get a competitive switch? Obviously, in a situation where there's a lot of competition and a likelihood to switch and also very high exposures to inflation, that's the upper right is the most difficult, uh, you know, situ- situation that you're in. And so you have to be very uh, careful about the, the, the pass through the price increases and delivering value through other types of arrangements, right? Whereas if you're in segments that there is a lot of inflation, but it is, let's say, commoditized, and there is reasonable expectation and historical precedent for those to be passed through, then that that would be a place that you could potentially use that lever more. I have a, a client who's in the building materials manufacturing space, and, and what happens with asphalt historically has been a big driver in the market. And and the market is trained, Like It's just trained that, okay, so these prices are commodities. They kind of go up, they go down. If there's a particular spike, then these things kind of come through, right? So that's a much different situation than we've had over the last decade in consumer packaged goods where taking price has been nearly impossible, right? Uh, And the muscle to do that outside of some very specific companies who have a regular program around it has been quite hard. So the message here is really to kind of open the aperture and and just make sure that we're leveraging all the things that go into that commercial deal, including price, to try to manage through this environment.
1: Thank you. So what role have governments and other policymakers been playing in trying to moderate these price increases? And what role should they play? Even the hint of price intervention, for example, can have a significant market impact.
0: So the first thing is, is that probably the job of the Federal Reserve Board and the European Central Bank and the Bank of England, et cetera, is probably the hardest jobs in the world. Like, oh, there's just no way for people to like you, no matter what you do. <laughs> so, so that's just reality, right? Um, and, one can, one can, and one can very easily Monday morning quarterback a lot of decisions that are out there and different policy moves that get made, and should they have been done earlier, should they didn't you know, we can We can talk at length about that. What's really important? Is what what's happening to inflation expectations, which they've been able to keep under control. If for people who don't look at it carefully, it's it's good to remind ourselves that when the Federal Reserve came out and said we're going to start moving on this last November, uh, and then they started moving on interest rates, the whole yield curve went up 200 basis points, right? So this this idea of forward guidance and trying to manage financial conditions through this jawboning that you're saying, Sean, in this case actually works if people believe the Fed. So financial conditions take a long time to tighten. So the real question here is how much of a wobble are we going to get from consumers over the next two, three months as we start seeing these interest rate increases on top of the already higher inflation environment? And that's what everybody should be watching.
1: You were talking earlier about how, especially with commodities, prices go up, prices come down. And with other goods, as customer inventory replenishes, you expect prices to come down do you envision something similar happening
0: with wages?
1: Because in the past, once nominal wages have gone up, they've usually
0: stayed up. It's not something that businesses like to do. Oh, by the way, we're gonna cut your wages. Oh, by the way, the next cohort of workers are gonna come in at a lower rate. And so given that empirical fact, uh, and that now for the first time in in, uh, actually decades, that real compensation per hour is growing faster or as fast as output per hour, Uh, and in the last few years, faster, the only answer here is productivity. Uh, And we have to change the notion of productivity from a focused on cost, taking out cost, to a focus on increasing the top line and output. What are the tools, training, automation, processes, all of those kinds of good things that I need to do to arm my workforce to be able to produce more with the stuff that they actually have. And that's really the only, the only way out of this, or else we're going to be faced with margins that are going to continue to get eroded. Uh, so it's, it's a mindset shift to think about productivity from the face of the top line, but that's really what we're encouraging folks to do. So think about, um, here's one that we're all familiar with because we all seem to wait in airports too much. In the US, like we still have a bunch of people driving around on these little cars in the airports and pulling planes in and out. Like you know, in, in many countries in the world, that's all completely automated. How many people do we have to have the and what's the productivity of people that are on the tarmac that have these automated capabilities versus those that don't and how do you kind of make that how do you make that case that's a real that's a real thing I, I like to also remind everyone of when toyota came to the u.s many decades ago and it took 15 years for then the big four and now the big three to figure out what on earth the Toyota production system actually was uh, and adopt it if you actually look at the numbers of the productivity improvements over that time period were from pure process, pure process improvement.
1: So if you want to successfully change processes across an organization, though, you probably need a company-wide effort. Is this where the Inflation Program Management Office comes in?
0: Yeah, so this is one of those situations where top-down leadership need to bring the cross-functional team together Uh, And we all know how hard that is. It's easy to say, but we have to change the incentives of all of the functions so that they actually can work together to tackle this problem. It's not going to be just the commercial folks. It's going to be supply chain. It's going to be procurement. It's going to be, you know, design. It's going to be everything. HR are all going to need to be at the table to do this. But the only way that it actually happens is if there is a mandate that's set by the leadership and that there is direct reporting from that team directly to the CEO or the N-1, whoever's responsible for it, to make sure that it gets done. Because unless it gets elevated to that level and you have a systematic approach to track execution, diagnose wins and losses, correct course, unless that's actually happening and it's being communicated and we're putting real effort against it, it's just going to be another you know, bureaucratic structure that people are going to end up getting, um, getting sick of and, and bypassing.
1: Well, it's easy to talk about another group reporting into the CEO, but CEOs are already pretty busy. In your experience, how does the CEO make room for this new effort? In other words, if this is a priority, what are you seeing them deprioritize to make room for this?
0: So we actually think that doing this right will reduce the burden on the CEO. Let's just say it's the CFO who is the head of, of the Inflation Program Management Office, which is kind of a logical assumption. They already report directly into the CEO. So the question is, do we have the right mandate for that office so that issues that need to get escalated to the CEO actually do versus what's happening now, which is the CEO is being brought in as the decision maker for all these kind of, well, this is not on our song sheet. What do we do? Well, we better, we better escalate because it's not, we don't have the approval or it's not our decision authority or we're not sure. And so all of that stuff is ending up on the desk of the CEO right now. So I think it's a question of like trying to package all that stuff, put it over here, get, get real management, high-level senior management time with the CEO mandate on it so that the organization pays attention, and then use this kind of escalation mechanism as needed. And we believe, in, and if we talk to our, our colleagues on the CEO excellence uh, work that we've done, That ability to do that, well, I could actually give the CEO the opportunity to kind of go up a level and and reassert their broader view, which is where they should be spending their attention.
1: Thanks so much, Ezra. And thank you also, Asitash. Really appreciate you taking the time with us today.
0: Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Sean.
1: And thank you to all our listeners for joining us today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. You can find Ezra and Asitash's article, Navigating Inflation, a new playbook for CEOs on McKinsey.com. You can also find transcripts of our past discussions on the Inside the Strategy Room podcast collection page at mckinsey.com slash ITSR, where you can easily explore our library of more than 100 previous episodes. If you'd like to share feedback or an idea for a future podcast, please email us at inside the strategy room at mckinsey.com. Finally, if you'd like to receive alerts on our latest insights, you can sign up on our podcast collection page at mckinsey.com/itsr or follow us on Twitter at MCKStrategy or connect with us on LinkedIn on the McKinsey Strategy and Corporate Finance practice page. Thanks again for listening. We look forward to having you join us again soon inside the Strategy Room.